we're looking at First Chronicles 29, verses 1 to 20 this morning. We are living through a time where medical testing is a bigger part of our lives than ever before. COVID tests, right? I have never lived in a time when so many people got tested so often. Why? Well, so that we know if we're ill or if we're contagious so that we can get the right treatment or so that we can make sure that we don't pass the sickness on to others. Well, this morning um, and this passage this morning from First Chronicles is another kind of diagnostic test. It's not testing our medical health, but rather our financial health, our attitude and our behavior regarding money and wealth and, and possessions. And I read it a while back, and it really struck me, and I thought, boy, I'm going to have to do a sermon on this passage when I get a chance. Because it's, it's a diagnostic test that I think we all need to take periodically so we know if we're ill or if we're going to be contagious to others when it comes to our finances. Today's passage uh, in, in First Chronicles tells us about a large assembly a large gathering that that takes place in the Old Testament times right at the end of the reign of Israel's greatest king, King David. David is very old at this point. He's in the process of passing the torch of leadership now, passing the crown of kingship on to his son Solomon. And one of Solomon's first tasks as he takes over as king will be to finish and to see through a priority which was very much on David's heart and mind, and that was the building of a grand and glorious temple in Jerusalem for God. And so David has gathered together at this moment that we read about a whole who's who of important leaders and officials. There are, according to verse 6, the tribal leaders, the clan leaders, the military commanders, of various ranks, and the officials of David's administration, likely hundreds of the leading people of Israel at that time, the best and the brightest, the most honored and respected ones, the power brokers and opinion leaders, the elites, those who with uh, status and wealth and responsibility. And David wants their support and their allegiance for his son Solomon as this young man takes the throne. And David also wants their support and their commitment for the first and greatest priority of Solomon's incoming administration, which will be the building of the Lord's temple. And like any political project or priority, the first thing you need, if you hope to get it done, is you need to secure the funding, right? In those days in Israel and in the surrounding world, it was the kings who were responsible for funding and for building temples to the gods. And so David tells how he has already provided generously gold, silver, other building materials for the building of the temple, And he's done it, presumably, out of the public funds of his administration. Taxes, tributes, tariffs, all of the income that had come in while he was king. But now, in verse 3, David says to everyone, I'm going to do even better than that. I have a private store of funds as well. 
kings at that time typically did. They had a personal private stash of wealth, which was sort of an emergency fund. Because if there was a rebellion in their kingdom, and if their treasurer or other administration officials were in on it, the king could easily be in trouble if his access to public funds were cut off. What if he needed to raise an army in a hurry to outfit it, to feed it, to hire mercenaries? What if he had to flee and, and support his, his friends and his family as they went off and became fugitives? And so the king would have private funds. Only he knew where it was. It was under his control for these and other emergencies. And David says in verse 3, in my devotion to the temple of my God, I now give my personal treasures of gold and silver for the temple of my God over and above everything I have already provided. David, remember, was, had been a very successful warrior. And in that day, when you won a battle, there was booty. There were spoils that you gained when you plundered the enemy. And David had no doubt amassed a lot of it personally. But he now gives it for the building of this temple, above and beyond the public funds that he's already allocated. David does this in part to set an example. And that's what good leaders do. They lead by example. Because what David is going to do next is he's going to challenge all of the VIPs at this gathering, all the who's who's of who, who, who's who's of uh, ancient Israel, all of the honored tribal heads, the army generals, the other people of influence, he's going to challenge them to give generously to the temple as well. He wants them to have skin in the game. He wants them to be behind 100% this building project and, and to get personally invested in it so that it doesn't get lost or, or stall out amid all the other competing needs and agendas of the new administration. He wants their buy-in, literally. Now, let me just pause here and say, as David makes this appeal, and as we're going to apply it to ourselves, this is not a tithing sermon. What's going on in here, here in this story is not about tithing, which reminds me, if we can put up the slide, it reminds me of a funny cartoon I saw recently about tithing. Uh, if, in case you can't see it, a boy and his father are at a restaurant. They've, they're done with their meal, and the father's pulling out his wallet to pay the bill, and the boy asks, how come the waitress gets 15% and God only gets 10%, right? <laughs> That's tithing. That's uh, giving God, tithing is giving God 10% of everything off the top. And that's not what this passage is about. You can, you can take the slide down. Because all of these people in today's story have already presumably tithed. You see, tithe, a tithe was, was more like a tax, a God tax. God was their real king, Right? Aside from the fact that David had been on the throne, their real king was God. And so the subjects of the king, they had an obligation to give God a tax. To not do so was rebellious. It was an act of sedition. To not tithe, to not pay the tax to your king was to say to God, I don't recognize you as my king. I want to be independent. I want to throw off your rule. 
Well, of course, God isn't a human king, so what does he need our money for anyway? God's not going to pave us roads or build us bridges or or, uh, outfit an army to protect us. So what did God do with the tithe, the tax that, that we gave God? Well, it went to the poor in the Old Testament. It went to those who couldn't provide for themselves, to the widows, to the orphans, to the foreigners and the immigrants, and to the Levites who served in God's house and so couldn't own or farm land on their own to build their own wealth and security. So that's all the tithe. It was assumed. The tithe was God saying, if you're loyal to me, If you recognize me as your king, then give me what you owe me, but give it not to me, give it to the poor, give it to the vulnerable, give it to those in need, give it to those who serve me and so depend on me. My heart is that you take care of them. That's how you can honor me with your tithe. The tithe was an obligation. It was a matter of allegiance, but that's not what's happening in today's passage. Today's passage is something different. It's over and above. It's a one-time chance to give, and it's optional. God hasn't commanded it, but David, as a godly leader, has already set an example, and now in verse 5, he's putting the challenge out there. He says, now, who is willing to consecrate themselves to the Lord today? Consecrate. That word is usually used of the priests who are set apart to minister in God's presence. Who's willing to set themselves apart today in a special way to the Lord by giving generously toward this temple? And these assembled leaders, they respond to David's challenge incredibly so. So much so that together they outdo what David has personally done. Those who have done their homework on the numbers in this passage and have converted all these talents, uh, they tell us two things. First, these people give over 200 tons of gold. 200 tons of gold. Can you imagine that much gold? And second, that this amount is right up there with the highest recorded transactions of wealth in the ancient world. It's right up there, for example, with the 400 tons of gold that Alexander the Great carted away from the Persian Empire, one of the greatest empires of all, that, of all time to that point, when Alexander conquered that great empire and raided its luxurious treasuries. This is in the billions of dollars that we're talking about by today's standards. That's how much the leadership, the nobility of Israel freely gives above their tithe to the building of God's temple. Well, King David is absolutely blown away. Verse 9, he rejoices greatly. And all who are there rejoice too, verse 9. The people rejoiced at the willing response of their leaders, for they had given freely and wholeheartedly to the Lord. And so in verse 10 and following, David leads them all in a beautiful expression of praise to God. And then David continues to pray, talking to God in verses 14 to 20. And he reflects on on the amazing generosity, uh, uh, the the, the, uh, 
generous offering of, of these leaders. And we can learn a lot about giving from David's prayerful reflection on this gift. So that's what I'd like to draw our attention to now in verses 14 to 20, because this is where we find the diagnostic test, the the health check about our financial health. And in it, we see three indicators, three variables related to our financial health. And here they are. First is our motive for giving. And then second is our attitude in giving. And third is our response after giving. So first, our motive for giving. And we see this in verses 14 to 16 of King David's prayer. And it's a, it's a humble gratitude. It's a motive of, of humble gratitude in light of God's generosity to us. Humble gratitude, verse 14. But who am I, David prays, and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this. Everything comes from you, God, and we have given only what comes from your hand. We're foreigners and strangers in your sight as as were our ancestors. Our days on earth are like a shadow without hope. Lord, our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a temple for your holy name comes from your hand, and all of it belongs to you. From God's hand. Did did you catch that, that repeated refrain? Verse 14, we have given only what comes from your hand. Verse 16, all this abundance for building this temple comes from your hand. All of it belongs to you, God. And up in verse 12, too, very appropriate for a group of high-flying leaders God, in your hands are strength and power. In God's hands and from God's hands. That's where we get our possessions and our wealth. So how much do you have, financially speaking? Do you have a house? Do you have a car? Do you have a smartphone or an Xbox? Do you have a salary? Do you have some savings? It comes from God's hand. Is that how you think of what you possess? Maybe not, because it's so contrary to the messaging of the world that's all around us. The world tells us it's yours. You earned it. You deserve it. You enjoy it. It belongs to you alone, right? No, the Bible says. That idea borders on blasphemy against God. It's arrogant. It's ungrateful. It's atheistic. The Bible insists, rather, on what David prays here in verse 16 at the end. Lord, all of it belongs to you. We live here in this promised land, David realizes, enjoying its harvest, taking advantage of its prime positioning in in the Middle East along several important trade routes. And it's your land, God, David recognizes. You own it. You're lending it to us. You're letting us live in it. You are our great provider. And we're only like foreigners and strangers in your land, as was Abraham and our fathers before us. David is actually quoting 
Leviticus 25:23 here, where God says of the promised land, the land is mine and you reside in my land as foreigners and strangers. That's what he told the Israelites. That's what David's quoting here. And David realizes also that all the wealth that we have, that, that we got as, as Israelites from plundering our enemies around us, Lord, you led us in those battles. You gave us victory. All of it belongs to you. And we received it from your hand. And so we're humbled and we're grateful at your generosity. Famous horror novelist Stephen King gave a commencement speech um, back in 2001 up at Vassar College nearby. And he told about how two years before that, he had been walking beside a country road when he had been hit by a van and badly injured. And he reflected, I had a MasterCard in my wallet, but when you're lying in the ditch with broken glass in your hair, nobody takes MasterCard. On that day and and on the months that followed, he got an important insight into one of life's important truths. And he told the students, we came in naked and broke to this life. And we may be dressed when we go out, but we're just as broke. King added that that Americans have a lot of power, but the greatest power we have is undoubtedly the power of compassion and the ability to give. He said, we have enormous resources in this country, but they are only yours on loan, only yours to give for a short while. He continued, I want you to consider making your life, he told the students, one long gift to others. And why not? All you have is on loan anyway. All you want to get at the getting place from the Maserati you might dream about to the retirement fund some broker will try to sell you. None of that is real. All that lasts is what you pass on. The rest is smoke and mirrors. That's what David realizes. That we're foreigners and we're strangers on this earth. Our days on earth are like a shadow, and all we have comes from God's hand. In other words, there are no self-made men or women. Do you have smarts? God gave them to you. Do you work hard? Do you have lots of self-discipline? That motivation and strength came from God's hand. Did you invest wisely? Did you save up? Did you do well? That prophet came from God's hand. That is the Bible's teaching. And David knows it to be true. And that's why he's humbled. And that's why he's grateful. And that's the motive for giving that he wants us to have. And so as we take this health check, this diagnostic of our financial health, how would you score yourself? How would you score your motivation for giving? on a scale of one to 10, as you ask yourself how grateful you are, how grateful I am for what we have, uh, how humble are we that we have it? And to what extent, on the other hand, have we bought into the world's lie that we earned it and we deserve it and it's ours? Is that how we feel or, or are we keenly aware 
that all that we have really belongs to God. And it's come to us from God's hand. So that's the first diagnostic question on the health test. The second indicator of financial health moving from our motivation in giving is to uh, ask, what's our attitude in giving? We see this in David's challenge to the other leaders in verse five. He says, who is willing to consecrate themselves to the Lord today? Who is willing, not begrudging, not reluctant, not resentful, but willing? And this word, this attitude of willingness rings like a refrain all down through the rest of this passage. I don't know if you caught that as it was read. Verse 6, then all the leaders gave willingly. Verse 9, twice, the people rejoiced at the willing response of their leaders, for they had given freely and wholeheartedly to the Lord. That word freely in the NIV translation, it's the same Hebrew word that's translated all the other places as willingly. I think the NIV is mixing it up just for variety's sake. Same word though. Then in verse 14, but who am I and who are my people, David asks, that we should be able to give as generously as this. Again, the word previous, uh, the word generously in Hebrew is the same word, willingly. And verse 7, 17 then, again, twice, all these things I have given willingly and with honest intent. And now, God, I have seen with joy how willingly your people who are here have given to you. Willingly. 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 Are you getting the message? Not out of guilt. Not because your arm has been twisted. Not because you, should, you feel that you should. Not because you're being pressured. But willingly. Freely generously, like David and like the leaders in the story. You know, one of the reasons I am preaching this sermon now is because CBC's finances are in a healthy place. And I don't need to come to you and pressure you or beg you to give extra to CBC. Not that I'm usually the one to do that anyway. But that's not an ideal attitude for giving. (laughs) Anyway, the best attitude is that you give, whether you're giving to CBC or you're giving to some other ministry or some other cause or some other need or a neighbor or a coworker, a family member who's in need, it's that you give willingly because you want to. Which brings us back to motivation, the motivation that would motivate this attitude that we're humbly and, and gratefully aware of God's generosity. We realize that everything that you have and that I have come from God's hand. It belongs to him. He's loaned it to us. And we're grateful and we're humbled. And that's why we give willingly. So financial health check on indicator two, our attitude. How willingly are we at giving? How willing are we to give? How willingly and freely and generously and eagerly do we give? How generous do we want to be? Again, I encourage you to give yourself a score from one to 10. Don't worry, I'm not going to ask you to give, read out your score at the end. Then third indicator on this financial health test, which is our response after we give. 
What is our response after we give? We see the response of David and the other leaders in verse 9 after they're done giving and all their gifts have been collected. We read that the people rejoiced at the willing response of their leaders for they had given freely and wholeheartedly to the Lord. David, their king, also rejoiced greatly. The response is joy. We see this again in verse 17 where David prays, And now I have seen with joy how willingly your people who are here have given to you. Joy. That's the natural response of a financially healthy person and a financially healthy community when they give generously. They are joyful after they give. They enjoy giving. They find joy in being generous. And that's the people's response here. And that's David's response here. They're a lot lighter in the pocket. They have given up untold wealth, abundant riches, which they could have used to try to feel more secure about their future or to try uh, rather to buy things that they would have liked to have. Or they could have used their wealth to exert power and influence over those around them. But they gave it back to God gratefully and willingly. And as a result, they feel joyful. Does that response surprise you? It, it does not surprise psychologists. Because there have been a number of studies done on the connection between generosity and joy. I may have shared a, one of them before by Bernard Rimland back in 1982. He uh, had a number of subjects and he had each of them write down a list of the 10 people that they were closest to, that they knew best. Okay. He said, write down the 10 people that you're closest to, that you know the best. And then he said, label each of those 10 people either as happy or as unhappy people. Then after they had done that of their list of 10, he had them go through their list again. And he said, now label each of the 10 people either as selfish or as not selfish. And this was the definition of selfishness that he gave them. Selfish, a stable tendency to devote one's time and resources to one's own interests and welfare. And an unwillingness to inconvenience oneself for others. That's selfish. And so they wrote down on their list, each of the people, were they selfish or were they unselfish? And after the study, when Rimland categorized the results, he found stunningly that all of the people labeled happy were also labeled unselfish. And he wrote in conclusion that those whose activities are devoted to bringing themselves happiness are actually far less likely to be happy than those whose efforts are devoted to making others happy. Do you want to know joy? Joy is connected to generosity, to getting your eyes off yourself and what you want and what you need and what you are worried about and what you or how you are going to make sure that you take care of yourself and that you work out your problems. That's not the path to joy. And instead, what we find and what I find, and, and I know others of you have found it too, because we have a number of very generous people in our congregation. 
It's when we give generously and willingly that we wind up joyful. And the result in our passage is, is that David offers this wonderful psalm of praise to God. Listen to the joy. Praise be to you, Lord. Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now, our Lord, we give you thanks and we praise your glorious name. So question three on our financial health assessment. When you give, do you feel joyful? Do you give willingly often enough to know the feeling of joy in giving? Give yourself a score of one to 10. So what do you get if you add up your three scores? How healthy are you financially speaking? The late Dallas Willard, in his usual insightful way, he, he put his finger on the root of the disease of financial unhealth. We're financially unhealthy, he says, if our perception of giving is giving up. We're financially unhealthy if when we give, our feeling toward it is we're giving up something. Giving up. That's not the perspective of David and the others in our passage, is it? No. Well, why not? Because they knew God. They knew God's provision and God's generosity. What is there to give up? Everything they had had come from God's hand. And God could always give them more of it. So they were able to give humbly with gratitude. They were able to give willingly and they were able to give joyfully. Then Willard quotes, interestingly, from psychologist Dave, uh, Eric Fromm. In the very act of giving, I experience my strength, my wealth. The experience of heightened vitality fills me with joy. I experience myself as overflowing, as spending, as alive, and hence as joyful. Giving is more joyous than receiving, not because it's a deprivation, but because in the act of giving lies the expression of my aliveness. I think King David would agree. He'd agree that to give is to experience joy and vitality and aliveness. A vitality given by God, a blessing given by God, and overflowing to others. He experienced the celebrating of the goodness of God and the provision of God by pouring it out. Not in fear that God doesn't care or that God doesn't provide, but in our joy that God is open-handed and generous, and so we can be too. That's financial health. Let's pray that God makes us healthy. God, we live in a world which is so predicated on greed and selfishness. 
and we have been deeply impacted by the worldly values around us. And I pray as we read your word that we wouldn't skip over the things you say about finance, but that we would let them sink in and that you would bring financial health to our hearts and to our lives so that we can honor you and so that we can know the joy of generosity and the joy of worshiping you. In Jesus' name, amen.